Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Musical Splaining Podcast. I am your host and bad energizer bunny, Kava Taharian. And I am the Pillsbury Doughboy that is wanted at large by the FBI, Angelina Meehan. And uh, what, a, what a day, what a day. Um, a day what for... What a day. Today, <laughs> a day today for... we have a very special guest. Yes. Writer and cultural critic, co-creator of Arden and... Resident birthday girl. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Emily St. James, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to me. Happy, happy birthday. I am killing being alive, which sounds like a thing <laughs> that should not make sense, but I'm doing, I'm doing great. That's awesome. I continue to be alive. I feel like killing thank being- Thank you for taking time out of your birthday to yes. be with us. Yes. Number one, thank you for that. <laughs> and number two, I feel like killing being alive is like the awful low budget horror version of Company that comes out by some like little shitty- I would watch like, Killing Being Alive, yeah. <laughs> sounds awesome. It's like the Grinch one that just came out. Sondheim before he died should have like greenlit a slasher movie version of company. He should have been like, let's just right? do this. It's like yeah. he, if you went, if you made company and the last of Sheila, I think you could figure out a way to bridge, you know, those two sensibilities right there. <laughs> you know, company company is absolutely the perfect setup for a slasher. They're all at this birthday party. Yeah. Like there could be a killer in their midst. <laughs> this is great. This is great. Every time he meets a new couple, he murders one of them out of jealousy that oh. he doesn't have someone that he wants to settle down with. He slowly ruins all of their marriages by murdering somebody yeah. in, in, in the relationship. Greenlit. Green Got it. I'm just imagining, I'm imagining Stephen Sondheim like on a little cloud just floating over us and he gives a wink and I think he'd love it. Because he likes yeah, this idea exactly. so much. Yeah. I think he'd just be like, do what I can now that you're alive and down there on Earth. Well, unfortunately, yeah. today is not a day about company, the horror, yeah. <laughs> the horror yeah. film. Speaking slash- of people who have been dead for <laughs> some of them for a very long time. Today, we're talking about Natasha, Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, of which I know absolutely like negative information Man. about. I don't even know what this is, not even <laughs> remotely. So I have nothing to talk about in the first half. Sure. So I will pass it over to you, too, to explain what the fuck we're watching. Well, this musical is about is about Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. So I've heard. That's, that's it says it right yeah. in the title. So. What are you not getting? That's true. Uh, but I will start by saying uh, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Um, so to, if, if Phantom was what defined my teenage years and Sunday in the Park with George was what mm-hmm. defined my 20s, uh, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 is what has defined my 30s so far. It is. Oh, it's very grown it's, up. It's a it's so <laughs> the most grown up show. But uh, it's definitely kind of like the show that has set the the tone for who I am in my 30s and the one that I keep coming back to and the one that's just kind of like been there with me through the last you know half of a decade I have a very personal relationship with this show and I know Emily does too and that was one of the reasons why I was like so excited to have you on to talk about this show I like I mean I'm so glad I get to see this like I I am staying at home right now for a variety of reasons and I can't go up and see it in San Francisco with y'all but like I'm so happy that it's being streamed like I'm gonna get to watch it because I haven't seen it since I saw it in 2016 in the immediate wake of Trump's election and I was like that was this that was the second time I had seen it I first saw it when it was on a it was in a tent just sort of off Broadway and I saw it there and it legitimately like I got out of it and they were selling like a, like a bootleg cast oh album because they didn't have the official one out yet. And so I like had to go to a, like it was, they only were taking cash because this was 2013 and there weren't like inventions. That, like, we didn't have credit cards in 2013. Yeah. There was no you know, Venmo. You yeah. remember that. Yeah. So I, I like ran to a convenience store, used the, uh, the ATM ran back $10 and, like, paid in fees for probably this. right. To even right. Get that cash. Yeah. I ran back. I got the because I just needed that music. And then I like brought it home, played it in the car for my wife. And she was like, this sounds good. And I was like, no, you don't (laughs) understand. I remember that I got out of the show and like I, I got the I just wandered down to like Times Square and just like felt like my life had been changed. And in a weird, like in a weird way it had, like I, I'm, that was the space in which I sort of started to rethink a lot of things in my life and really figure out what I wanted to do the next year. I, it was a show that really proved a catalyst for me in terms of like thinking about what I wanted out of my life and how I wanted to change my life. Um, I only have one tattoo and it's from this show because, uh, the, the day I started, uh, shortly before I started taking hormones to, um, transition, 
I was like thinking about a lyric from this show over and over and over again. And I wanted to mark it in some way. So I got a tattoo of it. I love that. Angelina and I are like, this show is a life changing <laughs> yes. event and Kave is going to see it and he's going to be like, yeah. okay, what? so what, what? <laughs> Who are what all these happened people? to you? So I, I had a very similar, uh, like story in the sense that like, um, I really loved, I had a war and peace phase in college. I really, it was one of my favorite books in college. I was, I went into it reading like, I'm going to read war and peace and fuck y'all. But then I ended up really, really loving it. And so flash forward to 2016, Dear Evan Hansen had just swept the Tony awards. I had heard of great comment. that. Yeah. Fuck, fuck. that. Uh, 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 but I had heard of uh, Great Comet when it was at the Ars Nova, when they were running it in the tents and everything like that, and just didn't think much about it because I was in a very different place in my life. And then so 2016 was right after the Tony Awards. Um, Father's Day rolled around. And prior to having a kid uh, for Father's Day, I like to be alone by myself because as I've talked about, my father passed away when I was a kid. It's a shitty day. So I went up to New York to I was like, I'm going to go, you know, rush a show, have a day to myself. Um and I was also at the end, I had, a, for, for for lack of a better word, I'll just say I hit a very low point in my <laughs> mental health uh, about six months before. And uh, I was like, fuck it, I'll just, you know, go rush a show and see something. And I was interested in Great Comet. I saw the Tony Award performance and I was like, sure, let's just do that. So I knew nothing about it besides kind of like the basic idea that it was based on the part of War and Peace and that like it had had a long uh, kind of off, off Broadway life prior to this. And I remember getting to about um, 30 minutes into the first act and just being like, is this show going to change my life? <laughs> like, like immediately oh, being like, what, on. what am I, what am I like? I knowing that I was watching something that felt incredibly special um, and different in, in, in something that I hadn't really seen before on Broadway. And by the end of it, I kind of left the theater in a daze, got on my bus back to Philadelphia, just listened to the Broadway cast recording about 500 times on the way home and immediately bought tickets so I could take Nick to see it. I was like, hey, Nick, um, sorry, I don't care if you have plans next weekend. We're going to go see Great Comet again because you have to see this. This um, it, it was in a really subtle way. But yeah, it was a show that kind of made me reevaluate like things in my life and what did I want out of life and how did I want to engage with the world? Because um. Uh, I, I can be a bit of an asshole, uh, for lack of a better word. And coming out of this just mean, especially at that point in my life, I was just things were messy. I was running on fumes. And uh, I just, yeah, it was like this very small, sudden change that has kind of stayed with me over the last five years and something that I go back to think about. And like Emily, I also have a great comet tattoo. <laughs> yeah. So with that said, maybe we should get into the notes about so this. No, no pressure on me no. to watch this. And you have yeah. to get a tattoo. Yeah, you <laughs> have to get a tattoo. <laughs> it's going to end with COVID. Hopefully they'll be a doing tattoo. the method performance. Right. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I, one thing I forgot is that when I saw it in 2013, just off Broadway in the tent, I saw it with Tay Diggs and Stephen Pasquale. They were sitting at the table right next to me. And I looked over at the end and Tay Diggs was sobbing. And I was like, Tay Diggs, this changed your life too. We have that moment, Tay yeah. Diggs and I. You shared a moment with Tay Diggs at Great Comment. And I think, I think with the notes, we'll clarify a little bit what Emily is talking about for Cave here when we say the tent. But let's, let's with that said, let's get into the notes. Yeah, the I was going to say, it's just on the street. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 is a sung-through musical adaptation of a 70-page section from Leo Tolstoy's 1869 novel War and Peace with music, lyrics, and orchestrations by Dave Malloy. Taken from a sliver of Tolstoy's epic doorstopper, <laughs> The Great Comet of 1812 concerns itself in part with Natasha Rostava, a young countess recently engaged to one of the country's finest young men, Prince Andrei Bolkonsky. Yeah, there's a lot of names in this Bolkonsky, one. Bolkonsky, who was off at war fighting Napoleon's army. I should say that I've actually, surprised, never read War and Peace either. Um <sighs> It also follows Count Pierre Bezukov, yeah. Andres, Andres, Andre, Andre, right? Andre. Yes, Andre. Andre's best friend and an old soul in the middle of an identity crisis and an irreparably damaged marriage. After Natasha makes her debut in Moscow society, Pierre's cat of a brother-in-law, Anatole, takes it upon himself to seduce the young woman and persuade her to break off her engagement. Will Natasha succumb to the awful machinations of this handsome and wicked man? Will Pierre manage to find meaning in a life that has held nothing but empty promises? Why is everyone so worried about this comet? All this and more in Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. Beautiful. Stunning. This is an adaptation of War and Peace, yes, but also the 1998 film Deep Impact. So the comet <laughs> destroys Moscow at the end. Oh, that's, the, that's the plot. Yeah. Oh, 
see, you know, it's so funny. I guess you have to see a show multiple times to get the right read out of it. Because I was looking at it yeah. from an Armageddon point of view where Pierre goes onto uh, the comet itself to blow it up. And that's how he finds meaning in his life. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a rival musical that came out around the same time that uh, was trying to like capitalize on Great Comet kind of uh, 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 fervor in the culture? Sure. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Well, um, well, yeah, let, let's finish up the notes so that we can discuss a little f- yeah. further about that in, in more earnest. Oh, 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 originally. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 when, when you do actually talk about it, it, there is a really bad philosophical joke that oh, comes from it. Okay. But uh, yeah. All right. Fair <laughs> yeah. enough. Originally commissioned by the Ars Nova Workshop in 2012, the first iteration of Great Comet began in an 87 seat theater where audience members were elbow to elbow with the actors who on top of performing the piece itself, handed out vodka and pierogies. Following its success there, that sounds like a fun show, uh, it was staged in a 200-person tent in the Meatpacking District, followed by a similar tent staging in the Theater District. Following its success at the 500-person American Repertory Theater in Boston in 2015, it opened at the 1,000-person Imperial Theater on Broadway in November 2016. It was nominated for 12 Tony Awards, and Psy only won two after getting washed out by... Dear Evan Hansen, a musical that was turned into a film that was excellent and everyone who worked on it was great. Yeah. The show closed less than a year later after its opening in September 2017. The production we will be seeing is currently running at Shotgun Players, a professional repertoire theater based in my home area of Berkeley, California. I mean, not Berkeley, but the East Bay. So that's exciting. Yeah. Um, so as, as mentioned in this, uh, this was the most nominated Tony uh, or Tony nominated show of its season. And it mostly got washed out by Dear Evan Hansen for pretty much every major category. I think Come From Away won Best Direction, but it was like kind of a traumatizing upset for a lot of people. Yeah. And like I knew I knew that Dear Evan Hansen was going to win everything. But people were like, well, Rachel, Rachel Chapkin, who's like a hero of mine uh, is going to win is going to win direction. Cause she's this new up and coming director, everybody. And then she lost too. And I was like, well, whatever. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. And like, yeah. I, I remember this like pre Tony award season, even before I had seen it, a lot of people were building it up as like, Oh, this is going to be like this season's Hamilton. It's just going to be like this gangbusters thing. There was all this like kind of emotional investment in great comets success that just kind of just got completely obliterated by dear Evan Hansen. And like, Knowing after the fact, as, as as someone who did not really know anything about the show until like a week after the Tony Awards. And then I was like, oh, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> like, yeah, it's it, it. I don't know. You still go on videos for like great comment related stuff and see people just deeply upset still by how much dear Evan Hansen kind of squashed this. And then this kind of bleeds into uh, it's closing, which I think we'll talk more about in the second half of this show, but it closed less than a year after and it did not recoup its uh, initial investment. And yeah, it's kind of astonishing. <laughs> thinking, I still get like flustered thinking about just like what happened here, um, because what is also notable about uh, the Broadway production of Great Comet was that it was the debut of Josh Groban, who is a multi platinum you know, recording artist who was making his Broadway debut in the show. And a lot of it was also kind of like hung on Josh Groban starring in the show. I'm assuming we all are on familiar terms with Josh Groban or you didn't have to go to Catholic high school and listen to you raise me up every morning. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of uh, emotional baggage tied to this show um, for people who like it. (laughs) But yeah, I think if people had like watched it get obliterated by come from away, the feelings wouldn't be so deeply intense. But I think, I think Dear Evan Hansen and Great Comet are such like wildly different shows with different philosophical points of view. And I, you know what, as the older I get, the I accept people like things that I don't like, and that's fine. But there is just something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say I haven't. Totally. <laughs> I mean, with Dear Evan Hansen, it is unacceptable. Probably because I haven't watched this show yet, so I haven't like had my life-changing moments. Yeah, I no, I, I think uh, what, what if, like, if I if you had to pinpoint some of the most bitter moments of my life, it's like my father dying, me not getting into like the college I wanted to get into, <laughs> and then <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen winning the Tony Awards. Um, it's but not... Yeah. It, it, it's not the same because Dear Evan Hansen was the favorite. It wasn't an upset, but it's very similar to Crash beating Brokeback Mountain at the Oscars. Yes, in yeah. In terms of like the feeling it stirred up in people 
where it's a similar thing where people were like, crash has a really vital, important thing to say about racism. And then literally six months later, everyone was like, no, it fucking Fucking doesn't. But like it was in that window to win the Oscar. And it's similarly like people are like, dear Evan Hansen has a vital, important thing to say about how we live our lives online. And then everyone was like, this is about a man who like gaslights an entire family. And like, you know, I do think that like come from away, like was another musical people felt very strongly about. And like, that was a year where literally everything else that was nominated would have been a better winner. But obviously Natasha Pierre and the great comment of 1812 is one of the greatest works of art ever created. Wow. You need <laughs> to know that. Yes. Okay. Looking okay. into your eyes through like the zoom, like, yes, Kave, it's one of the greatest pieces of art ever made for this stage. The, the, upset, for me, me. <laughs> the, the upset for me was uh, the big upset for me. The Tony Awards was orchestrations because uh, Alex Lacamoire, who did the orchestrations for Dear Evan Hansen, is incredibly talented, very prolific, you know, orchestrator, great person, nothing against him. But um yeah, put on headphones and listen to the Great Comets cast record any of either of the Great Comets cast recordings and just put on really nice headphones and go lose your mind and then go, what the fuck? Like, I understand Dear Evan Hansen winning all of the big Tonys, like, you know, best musical and, you know, best actor, especially for Ben Platt. He did give a great performance. But um, I guess at an artistic level, it just felt like, you know, everyone's like, oh, award shows, they're just for really just putting butts in seats and that's about it. And I think this felt like the plainest example of that because, yeah, Dear Evan Hansen had an audience. Uh, it spoke to teenagers. Clearly, it spoke to people. It ran for like, what, six years? Yeah, you sit and reevaluate. And you're like, this is a show about a teenage boy who, you know, tells a, a girl her dead brother, like, actually did care about her when he was abusive and shitty. So like, yeah, just a very strange, strange year that a lot of people are still thinking about, especially in the context of the fact that the Great Comet of 1812 is the most important thing to have ever been made by human hands. It was also like, you know, that was shortly after Trump had won election. Like, it just really felt like Trump and Evan Hansen, you know, that kind of guy who just like winning mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Over. <laughs> There's over. no room. No room for the underdog anymore. It's, actually, it's, actually. I think La La Land won an Oscar that year, too, which is I remember feeling <laughs> a certain thing, a certain similarity of being like, what the fuck? Uh, it did that, lose to Moonlight. It did yes, lose to Moonlight. It did. In the oh, technically, you're right, right, right. He won uh, Best Director, but he, it was like nominated for all those awards. But the too. same people feeling. who did Dear Evan Hansen did La La Land. So if you felt that. What? Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. Greatest Showman. Ah! So just think about if you don't, you have no context for the score of Great Comet. And I think that's great going into it. But for for what it was up against, think La La Land and Greatest Showman and Dear Evan Hansen and that kind of music. This is and, now a conspiracy theory officially. I know. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's sad because I, I say like compare this show. You know, but Donald Trump, Donald Trump would have loved this show. I just hate to admit that he would have been, had a great time. Yeah. He wouldn't have understood a fucking thing about it, but he would have yeah. been like, oh, my God, they got people dancing and there's loud noises like he, you know, he loves this big budget <laughs> spectacle musicals and this. Yeah, he would have, he would loved have gotten the chandeliers. a tattoo. It would he have been would, great. No. Yeah. <laughs> I can't look at my arm ever again now. He would have loved the golden chandeliers. He would have been like, oh, this yeah. is beautiful. This is classy. Uh, he would very have loved classy, it because it's, it's set in Russia. <laughs> um, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Zing. Zing. I'm putting the real the real uh, party <laughs> shots out here. Um, I'm, but adding, yeah. I'm adding an extra. I'm adding an extra challenge for Kaveh. When you see this show, choose the song from it that you think Donald Trump's staff would play to calm him down. Yeah. Keep that in mind. And also okay. why, why I'm excited to see it at this. So we're seeing it at a smaller repertory theater in Berkeley. At, um, and I'm really excited to see it because the show originally started as, you know, in an 88 person theater with a small cast that was doubling as a uh, half of the pit. Um, so this, you know, the Broadway production had, an ensemble of dozens of people. And now it is scaled down, I think to about 12 people by my count in thereabouts and a smaller pit. And I'm very interested to see it at the smaller level. Cause I never got to experience it when it was, you know, in it's baby steps at the Ars Nova. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very pumped to see it also because theater does not begin and end on Broadway. And I don't think we've really done like anything quite like a repertory theater or a smaller regional theater before. And I'm very excited to you know, yeah, even get to discuss have. That, yeah. that aspect of it. So yeah, yeah, I'm hyped. I, I love this right. show so much. Um, literally played the soundtrack to my daughter or the cast recording to my daughter while I was pregnant with her like every day. <laughs> I played No One Else for, which is one of my favorite songs from the show, but I played this one song for her every day. And it's just like, at this point, so in, intertwined in my life. Like if you think I sound crazy talking about Phantom, Great Comets, like it has, it has occupied an even larger chunk of my brain in a way. So yeah. <laughs> okay, looking forward to uh, discussing it. I think we'll go ahead and go to our break. 
go watch The Great Comet and return with our thoughts. Yes. So many. Today's episode is brought to you by Nebula, who's finally getting their own ad spot. Hooray! If you don't know, Nebula is a video streaming platform built by and for creators with over 14,000 videos from over 150 creators, dozens of high production originals, and tons of exclusive things. Along with videos and podcasts, you can now learn skills from your favorite creators and fully produced classes available exclusively on Nebula. If you're listening to this podcast, I imagine you're a fan of our friend Lindsay Ellis, who, after taking a little break last year, returned to creating video essays exclusively on Nebula. FYI, our very own Angie also helps her out with them, so you'll be supporting her too. Go do that. I personally enjoyed Lindsay's video titled, How They Adapted Lord of the Rings, parentheses, The Good One. In it, she breaks down why the filmmakers made the changes they did when taking Tolkien's iconic series from book to screen. I really enjoyed it because I actually never read the books, but now after watching Lindsay's video, I can pretend like I did and have something interesting to talk about at a cocktail party and avoid having to show my true self to any strangers. Right now, you can get 40% off an annual subscription to Nebula by going to nebula.tv slash musicalsplaining. Once you're a part of the club, you can gorge on videos from friends of this podcast like Princess Weeks, Todd in the Shadows, Sarah Zed, and so many more. Again, go to nebula.tv slash musicalsplaining for 40% off an annual subscription and support your fellow creators. And we are back from We're the great back. We time comet. traveled. We did. We did so much. I At this point, I feel like we've gone through so many wormholes that I am also my present self, but my past self, my future self. I am myself in 1812. I am myself in 2023. Um don't yeah. look at me. I've been going like on interstellar like, when we're like pushing stuff over like the library books to right. like push out and try and communicate with people in the past. This podcast is now hosted by Dr. Manhattan. Uh, right. I am watching another musical. I am tired of these musicals. Right. This is uh, actually hosted by uh, Weena from the time traveler. It's I uh, dipping into podcasts. Um, no, we are back from uh to talk about the Great Comet of 1812, or I should say Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. It's very important to get the whole title in there just because it's so fun to say. Yes. Um, but yes, all so the characters. This is going to be an interesting episode so, because we kind of all saw it in a different way, but we, we're going to talk through it because yeah. there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, in terms of the context of how we all saw it, um, Angie and I, we had alluded to this in a prior episode when we were talking about Mean Girls and we didn't say what the other musical was that we saw that day, but this, in fact, was the second show. Yes. Um, we were up in San Francisco when we saw Mean Girls and then we hopped on the BART and went over to the East Bay and saw this at the Shotgun Players Theater. I yes. think it was yes, that's what correct. it was called, like right off the. Um, Right off the BART station. And uh, Emily, I believe you watched the uh, streaming live performance. I watched the stream that came very early in the run. So mm-hmm. it was like, I think, their first week of shows. And the stream was all janky for the first act. So I saw like maybe 25% of the first act. Then the second act was perfect. So I saw sure. all of that. Okay. So like, but I know this show really well, so I, I think we'll be fine. Um, I will say the production I saw had some like first week jitters. It was not my favorite show I've ever seen, but I love this fucking musical. So I didn't care. Um, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, cause we saw it towards the end of, they had already extended it by the time we had seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So we were seeing it towards the end of it's like, I think second extension. Did we yeah. even talk about, Oh, Which, funny enough. The first time we were going to go see it is that uh, you flew all the way out from fucking Pennsylvania and right. then somebody in the cast got COVID. Yeah. So you had to fly out a second time to go <laughs> see it for the, uh, what, what is it called? The, the cancellation. So it was, it was a trek. It was a trek to be able to see this. Like everybody had some sort of hurdle that we had to go through, but we did finally all get to see it in some one version or another. We struggled through it for the comet, and you know what? At the end of the day, it was worth it. Um, but I guess with that, do we want to get into a recount of what happened? Kava, can you recount this whole show and what happens? Yeah, that, that was that's one of the things we're going to talk about. Um, but yes, apparently there's a comet. It's 1812, and there's a couple people in it. That's the extent <laughs> of what I understood was happening when I was watching it. Yeah. Although I did go back and, of course, re re uh, refamiliarize myself with the plot elements of sure. it. But um, I guess it starts with uh, Natasha. 
Yes. She's young. She's young. She's quite young. (laughs) So uh, she and her cousin Sonia are being basically introduced into Moscow society as they've mostly been raised in St. Petersburg. But they're being introduced into Moscow society by uh, Natasha's aunt, uh, her aunt Maria. Um, So, okay, we're going to this is this is a very fast and loose plot here. (laughs) Can I can I just jump in and say that Sonia's good and Maria's old school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess those, you know, the very important things to establish at the front of this for people is uh, uh, <laughs> Natasha is young. Sonia is good. Maria is old school. <laughs> Elaine is a slut. Anatole is hot. Uh, uh, Dolokhov is fierce. Pierre's a cuck. Yeah, so basically, okay, so getting back to that. So uh, basically, Sonia and uh, Natasha are in Moscow and they are going to be taken to the opera by their Aunt Maria to be introduced into Moscow society. And Sonia and Natasha are both engaged. Natasha is engaged to Andre, who is notably not here, as the lyrics say, um, who is off fighting. He's war. Yeah, <laughs> he's out fighting in some war. War stuff. Yeah, doing war stuff somewhere out there. Basically the Napoleonic Wars. And he and so she is kind of like without her fiance and in this new bubble society. So they go to the opera. And at the opera, she meets basically like the hot fuck boy, you know, epitomized in this guy named He's Anatole. Definitely a fuck boy, yeah, yeah, just like this absolute fuck boy, Anatole, um, who happens to be the brother of Pierre, who we have not really talked about yet. Uh, Pierre's wife, who is a giant massive, as the show calls her, and I think they say it, embracing it foolheartedly, a slut. Listen, they're polyamorous. Right. They're uh, you know they have an open relationship. Let's right. not judge them. Right. Look, you know, they're, they're very Pierre modern. Pierre is here. apparently into it. He's fine with it. Yeah, they're just ahead of their time that's They're all it just, is sure uh uh so basically they scheme because they love scheming they're like the basically like the most um they're just like the stereotypical evil family basically and they see young natasha and uh helene thinks like oh it'll be fun to mess with her and to like screw around with her because i'm a miserable person who likes to do this and anatole just likes to you know because i'm bored yeah stick it yeah, wherever there's he no can twitter for her to go on right, and, right, you know, exactly. go on social media or tiktok so she's like this is what they used to do back in the day exactly so uh basically that ends up being successful. Anatole gets Natasha, who again is very young, to be like, wait a minute, I don't love Andre anymore. Andre's been gone mm-hmm. for so long and now I love this guy named uh, Anatole for some reason because he's really hot. Like, he's just really that hot. He's so just hot. so hot. So hot. He's yeah. so hot. Um, <laughs> so that's basically the first act. I guess I should also mention Pierre here who kind of has his own plot going on. As we mentioned, Pierre is in a very unhappy marriage to this woman and he's basically mm-hmm. just kind of looking for meaning in his life and has not really found it and and um, in act one, he basically stays home from the opera, gets really drunk, goes out with Anatole, this, you know, fuck boy and his best friend, gets himself in a duel with the best friend who is a good shot, but accidentally wins uh, the duel. And, uh, you know, it's kind of it was kind of it's kind of a situation where he actually wants to be shot because he's feeling so low about his life that like it would kind of absolve him of having Suicide to figure it out by duel, essentially. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, he has this mini revelation that he needs to, you know, get in a better spot in his life. And that's basically mm-hmm. his part of act one. So then act two comes along. Sorry, like, I'm just like, if you could follow along with this, I feel like I have a giant Pepe Sylvia board right now. Um, <laughs> like just trying a, to. This is a very complicated plot. And like, yeah. It, yeah, like in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, everything's very roundabout. And yeah. So act two, just to get through this. So we I, can I mean, just like. I mean, I did. I, I will say this, though, Angie, I did think about this. It is sort of the same plot as every musical you make me watch, which is people in the 1800s. There's a love triangle. (laughs) Somebody loves somebody else. But then the other person doesn't love another thing. It's about like unrequited love or love not met. That's base. That's the broad. I actually we'll we'll talk about this in a second. Dave Malloy has written about this. Go ahead, Angie. Yeah. Okay. okay. (laughs) Speed running it through the second act. So the second act happens. Natasha is just like, yes, I'm going to, you know, marry Anatole. I'm going to break off my engagement with Andre. I should mention that Andre's family is very weird and has alienated Natasha entirely at this point so mm-hmm. she's just like fuck it i'm done with andre friendship ended with andre uh my new best friend and uh she ends up writing you know she breaks it off formally with andre sonia her cousin finds out and sonia is like oh this is this is gonna fuck up her life so badly this is gonna fuck everything up for this and i can't get into mm-hmm. the context of the actual book war and peace but sonia has a lot of motivation into you know not letting natasha do this so of course 
she goes and tells their Aunt Maria what Natasha's up to. Meanwhile, Anatola's plying to basically kidnap Natasha and take her um, out of the country so he can marry her. But he's already married. That's the other thing. He's already married. Yeah, he's already married and has not told Natasha this. Cause Fucking dog. Why would he? Yeah, exactly. Because he Polygamy sucks. versus polyamory. Yeah. Polyamory. This, that's polyamory? Really Is that the poly- word? Polyamory, I believe, as they say. No, polyamory um, <laughs> versus polygamy. <laughs> right, but so the only one of the few people who knows that Anatole is married is Pierre. So basically, um, Pierre's like at first helping Anatole because he's like, "Oh, this is great. You're gonna be married. You're gonna you're gonna fuck around. That's great. You're young. You get to do all the fun things. I'm cool. Yeah, yeah, cool with it." And then of course, um, the aunt comes to Pierre and is like, "Hey, Anatole's gonna run off with my niece." And he's like, oh, shit, wait, that's Natasha. Oh, wait. Okay, I have to tell you that, like... Oh, shit. Yeah, that 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 he's already married. He's got, like, a wife out in Poland that he kind of was, like, forced to marry. The implication is that he seduced her in turn, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Uh, and as all this is happening, Natasha decides to take arsenic to kill herself, but fails. And so she's left very weak from it. Pierre uh, convinces mm. Anatole to get the fuck out of Russia because he's like, if I'm not going to kill you, someone else is going to kill you for this. So You're done Yeah, yeah. you You've need to go. Canceled. Yeah, you need to get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, then uh, Andre comes back from the war finally, and Andre is just like, fuck Natasha. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, fuck her. <laughs> I never want to look at her again. And Pierre's like, well, you told me once, like... That people should be forgiven because he's trying to build bridges. You know, Pierre is like yeah. perfect middle child syndrome here. Uh, Andre's like, no, I can't be that kind of a person. Go, you know, tell Natasha to piss off, basically. And so Pierre goes yeah. with the intent of doing that, but just sees how sad and broken Natasha is by all of this. Because, again, she's very young. She's like 18 years old. And he has this like weird, tra- not weird. He has this very moving, transformative experience where he kind of selflessly is like, wait, like, are you okay? And like, you know, and you're a person that you're a person. And like, (laughs) he kind of remembers, you know, the humanity inherent in the world and is moved by that and basically confesses his own love for Natasha, but realizes, you know, that it's, it's a lost cause, but it it is done in Mm -hmm. the sense of letting her know that like her life is not over, that there's so much to her life besides You're just so young. Yeah. So young. You're like 19 years old. You have like right. 10 more lifetimes. Right. Although exactly. I guess at that time, she probably would have died at like 30. Right. But, right. For sure. You know. She was like halfway through her life. Um, but yeah. so like she, he gets her to smile and he just has like this, you know, transformative experience, you know, after being just drunk and sad and moody and, you know, aimless this whole show. And as he leaves, he sees, mm-hmm. you know, the titular great comet of 1812 in the sky. And for as much as it is a portent of horrible things to come, to a lot of people, he sees it as this symbol of, you know, changing into a new life, of, of finding, beginning again, of, of being able to blaze joyfully. And that is the end of Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. <laughs> yes. <So, laughs> yes. Nicely done. Thank Yay. you. Thank you. I'm not. Speed run. Yeah. Speed, speed running Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. So, yes. Um, I, I will say this. When we saw it, uh, so we saw it, the uh, the Shotgun Players Theater is about, um, I think it's 150 seats, give or take. And it's very small. It's yeah. a very small uh, theater, but a very neat theater. Um, but so they had basically kind of sort of tried to do their best to copy what uh, um, Rachel Chavkin did with the original production of Great Comet, where they had like seating up against the stage. And so I say this because Kava and I were right up against the stage <laughs> the whole we time. Were right in it. Yeah, we were. Um, we, the pit was also sprinkled we were, we were throughout in front the of theater. The piano player, right? The the uh, the wind instruments were behind us. The drummer was in front of us. Yeah, yeah. The um, woodwind player was right by us. It was really fun, though. I have to say, I I liked being in the pit, like in the mix of it. Yeah. Sorry, in the thick of it. I thought that was like a nice way to experience it. Yeah, I just I did. I did want to start off by saying about halfway. You did it during the moment where I first went. I think I really like this show. You turned to me mm-hmm. after the song. No one else. And you went, oh, mm-hmm, my. Mm-hmm. You're like, I fucking like love this. I have no idea what's going on, but I love this. Yeah. So like, <laughs> it, it was like the most gratifying feeling in the world, because I remember when I saw the show for the first time, I saw that song and like I just my heart kind of stopped. And I was like, whoa, it's what? a showstopper for sure. Yeah. It's a beautiful song. It's it's yeah. I was like, what am I watching um, here? Yeah. So, so sort of what you were alluding to, if we're just going to go like, let's get right into it. So, and this is, this is a difficult part of when we see shows together is that we're not supposed to talk about them immediately after, even though that's like the desire immediately after you see a show to sit and like discuss it. But of course we have to save it for you good people so you can hear it like raw and live uh, on a microphone. But 
the thing that I told Angie specifically was, I was like, I don't know what the fuck just happened for two hours or three hours. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. The songs were great, but I have no idea what any of the plot was. I couldn't follow any of it. I don't know how much of that is just me being like dad brain or whatever. I mean, not literally the dad, but just because I'm at that age. But the thing that you told me that made me feel a little bit better was that you said that that was a common criticism of the show or not like a prevalent one, but it's one that I'm not the only person who's been confused by what's going on. Yeah. Like the big criticisms of the show are that, yes, it's it's impossible to follow if you don't know War and Peace. Although I think that's overstated. I well, The first time I saw this, mm. I had I had no idea what happened in War and Peace. And actually, the mm. first two times I saw this and I, I felt like I followed it pretty well. That said, uh, the Broadway production had like family trees and shit in the playbill. Yeah. So like you kind <laughs> you could kind of like flip to that. The other criticism is sort of that it is like. I guess a bad toll, a bad, almost a Tolkien, a bad Tolstoy adaptation because sure. it blows, mm. it blows up the opulence to a degree, uh, at least on Broadway, it blows up the opulence to a degree that is like hard to escape when Tolstoy was sort of talking about how there's a lot of folly in being this rich as you're sort of living on the edge mm. of the apocalypse. That said, this show debuted on Broadway in the winter of 20 or in the summer of 2016, right before Trump was elected. I saw it like a couple mm-hmm. weeks after Trump was elected. And like, I, I definitely had that feeling of like, no, this is exactly the right time for this show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. Those are kind of the two common criticisms is that like it's hard to follow and that it has stripped a lot of the nuance out of out of Tolstoy. I keep saying almost saying Tolkien. And wouldn't that be great? Can you elaborate on um, why you thought it was so appropriate at the time that you did see it that in the in the shadow of the Trump presidency? Now, to be clear, I the, the very first time I saw this was, I think, 2013. I saw it in the tent uh, off Broadway. I think we talked about this in the opening. But when I saw it after, right after Trump was elected, there was this element of like all of War and Peace is about throwing a huge party on the eve of the apocalypse. And I think Mm -hmm. back a lot to that period between Trump's election and his inauguration, when it sort of felt like if you were someone who has even vaguely progressive politics in the United States, like it felt like there was, you were kind of living on the precipice of just this unknown, terrible country that you weren't entirely sure what was going to happen. And of course, now that we're on the other side of it, we know what happened and we kind of have, lived through that and kind of can grapple with the experience of it. But that winter just really felt like everybody kind of dancing on the edge of something that was about to happen. And that's really what this show's about. I want to just go around the table and see how we all mm. feel about Napoleon. I say, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fuck Napoleon. Let's just be real and say, fuck Napoleon. No, like, so, so that interesting, you know, that criticism um, of, of, you know, it, it kind of overblowing or blowing out rather what Tolstoy's whole, you know, kind of criticism of this indulgence and opulence being like a blinder to the reality of what is about to happen. I don't know if the show, I think the show actually captures that really well. Like even in the very beginning of the show, there's that line that's like chandeliers and caviar, the war can't touch us here. Like this is very pointedly about a bunch of people. They're at this this point of um, privilege and uh, I guess bubbled from the reality of how horrible, I mean, because this book can't go into the, I love War and Peace. It's one of my favorite books. And this book obviously can't, or the show obviously can't go into like the incredibly upsetting and distressing battle scenes or, you know, the downfall of, of Moscow being burned to the ground by, you know, Russians just to prevent, you know, France from taking it. You know, it doesn't have the time to do that. But I, for me personally, I'm like, no, that show is absolutely about that. I think it just ran into the problem that is any time a show with left-leaning political themes ends up on Broadway, a a place that is predominantly uh, catering to the rich. You saw the same thing with Hamilton, you know, like Hamilton is, is about overthrowing unjust systems on some level and like that, but then you're on Broadway. I think it is just this thing of like, at that moment in time when this show debuted and we were having a lot of conversations about income inequality and so on and so forth. Sure. This show's text being so against Cutting so against the metatextual context of watching it on Broadway was, I think, a lot for some critics. I think now that it's just a show that you can like mount, not anywhere because it's a very hard show to mount, but that you can you mount if you pay the the, li- the licensing fees. Like you know, I think there is more of an opportunity for it to have a life as a, a piece of like of cultural critique. No, that, that makes and, that makes. And ultimately, sense. what you guys are talking about is just like. And I'm asking more than I'm declaring. So are you saying more the fact that like it's these people who are super rich that like these are the kinds of things that they fixate on? Like, 
and uh, concern themselves with as opposed to what's going around around them and the fact that they're on the precipice of, you know, as you said, a whole new crazy reality. The review that I'm thinking of specifically is Jesse Green's and I think New York Magazine. And um, he's very much talking about, okay, Tolstoy's like criticizing rich people. When I saw this mm-hmm. show way, way, way off Broadway, I felt like it was tapped into that. And the bigger it gets, the glitzier it becomes, the harder it is to, the harder it is to sort of suss that out. It's still in the text, but the production is cutting against the text. And then the added element of it's on Broadway, only rich people are seeing it. You're you're seeing, you know, moms from the Midwest who shelled out a whole bunch of money to see Josh Groban. Like, so there was that element. Now it's kind of just a show in a way that like something like Hamilton can't be because Hamilton's still this sensation. So like, I think that's an interesting tension within, within this show, but specifically within the Broadway production of it, which was obviously a mess in other ways. It kind of reminds me of what people are talking about now with like wealth porn TV shows of like the super rich, like succession or billions or any of that kind of stuff A bit, where they're yeah. like, are you criticizing them or are you basically like, you know, being a voyeur in terms of that life in terms of like what you wanted from it or what you wished you had. Yeah. As someone who really loves War and Peace, like the, there is like this level of um, kind of frustration with the show. Like if you know what happens in the book, that the show just does not have the time or capacity and it has to be its own thing where you have to accept that it cannot discuss these things. Um, but kind of the the thread of Pierre is Pierre is one kind of a stand in for Tolstoy, but also like he has this journey of like, you know, he's sent off to school, he's sent off to Paris for his education and comes back to Russia being like, yeah, Napoleon, yeah, all these liberal, you know, policies that Napoleon is bringing to equalize the people, which is, of course, you know, runs against everything that his, you know, society says in Russia that, you know, like these, these are all bad things. You know, Russia still has serfs. Russia... So he's kind of the odd man out when he comes back from school. He's also the bastard of a very wealthy man who gets um, basically um, uh, after his, his his father dies, he becomes a count and is now naturalized into into, um, you know, the aristocracy. So he's kind of this odd man out whose idea of thinking is constantly being pushed into like these different like. So what he marries well, he marries Helene and he's like, yes, I married a hot, rich woman. I'm doing great. And they hate each other and their marriage is awful and she wants nothing to do with him. And none of this money, none of this marriage has brought him any meaning. And as the war progresses and the horrors of like the Battle of Bordino happen, he just sees like, oh, this is what Napoleon's ideology hath wrought. Like all of this violence. This is not what I thought that this would actually be. And then after after where the musical ends, he's basically taken as a prisoner of war by the French and sees a lot of horrible violence happen against his fellow men, but also on both sides. And then like, so yeah, he's constantly having to have his ideology pushed. And you never quite get the closure of like what that journey is entirely in, in that show. It, but like, yeah, like that's what's like frustrating for me. And there's all this context of like, no, that's Andre. interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really good explanation of the context of it, because I didn't come away. Under, I mean, obviously, I didn't really understand what was going on anyway, but like, that's actually very helpful. Can we just talk about how Pierre is an egg? Like the book? <laughs> I've heard that egg? before. Yeah. It, the reading this book, uh, I read it in this in 2020 in the middle of lockdown and uh, but reading it as a, as a trans person, there's a scene where Pierre holds some lady's gloves and cries at some inexpressible sadness that he feels. Everything he does in this book is like there's this weird disconnect between his intellect and his physical form that is so familiar to so many trans people I know. And there's mm. like little hints that like Tolstoy had some, you know, gender stuff going on. Of course, it's the mm-hmm. fucking 1800s, so there's not a lot any of them can do about it. But like... This book is very much like, and and the musical gets into this less, but the opening song, Pierre, which made me like just weep when I saw it in 2013 before I was out to myself is like, it's dawned on me suddenly. And for no obvious reason that I can't go on living as I, as I have, it's just like, there's something so inexpressibly like beautiful and melancholy and sad about this, this man who's like feels his life slipping away from him for reasons he can't entirely pin down. And like, obviously a lot of people can fucking relate to that anhedonia, but if you read the entirety of war and peace, Pierre's an egg. It's just true. And like, I'm glad that you, I'm glad if you take two things away from this podcast, fuck Napoleon, Pierre's an egg. Those are the two things. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually like, I remember, um, cause I used to be, I used to be on the Tumblr and, uh, that was actually like a huge, huge, like very popular fan theory that, um, Pierre is an egg. And it's one that like, having gone back and reread war and peace a couple of times since then, like, I'm like, Oh yes. So I'm, I am as this woman, but like, also I understand that point of view 100%. 
I'm going to assume from context clues because I've never heard the term egg. Oh, cave. Um, cave. It's like, I mean, I understand <laughs> yeah. context, contextually, because I would, you'd call somebody an egg who's sort of like a dummy. Be like, oh, that's simple little egg. But this sounds like a very different meaning. It's somebody who hasn't hatched yet. Yeah, it's it's, of, it's yeah. a trans person pre coming out. I believe it used to just refer to trans women because the bad joke was there's a chick in there. But um, uh. it is now just sort of like it speaks to this universal experience of being gender dysphoric and not into universals, obviously the wrong word, but it speaks to this experience within trans people that is vaguely mm-hmm. universal of being like, not feeling this weird separation between you and the world, like a bird shell eggshell, mm-hmm. like sure. is this thing that comes between you and the world. And then it opens and you're out and you sort of have that layer removed and you didn't even quite realize how thick yeah. and impenetrable it was. Anyway, mm. War and Peace is about that. That's the one thing War and Peace is about. It is not about anything else. Yeah. I hard That's agree. I, I will I will co-sign that. And even just like a, like the yeah, the, the through line of just um if I were not myself, but you know, like this this idea if I were free, like Yeah, there was for a long time there when I before I was out, I was like, well if I could just like be a different man, like maybe that mm. would be okay. And it just sure. you know it, I tried on a bunch of personas. None of them took. And then I like started taking estrogen and was like, oh, okay. All right. There we go. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, fuck Napoleon. Fuck Anyway, <laughs> fuck Napoleon. Uh, yeah. Those are the two takeaways from it. Uh, I think there's like this other like design through line that the the production we saw kind of copied from Rachel Chofkin's production where not only does it kind of blur uh, time in terms of like costuming and music and and, and just genuinely how people are on the stage, but also like this idea of like blurring um, aesthetics and gender in the costumes too, like, like to create like this, this, this idea, like this show is about, I guess it really is about identity, like Pierre's identity and then Natasha who doesn't really have one at this time and only has this very vague mm-hmm. idea of what it is to be an adult in the world and having that, you know, come crashing down on her really, really hard. Um, and this this production also that we saw also carried that over pretty well. It was it had a lower budget, obviously, so it couldn't go as big and bold and what the Broadway production had, like this sort of mixture of like 80s, uh, 89, you know, right at the fall of the Soviet Union kind of aesthetic mixed in with like this 1830s, or sorry, 1812 rather. 1830s is getting way ahead of time here. Um, I think what is so striking to me about the show, because when I saw it, um, because I I think I'd alluded to it at the very beginning of this podcast, I'd gone through like a really, really, really bad uh, personal low that I related to Pierre Mm -hmm. a lot when I had seen it, because I had I had really just, I guess, for lack of a better word, had fucked up my life in a really hard way and didn't know Mm -hmm. how to come out from it. So when I saw it, I was just coming off of that (laughs) Uh, and was trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to, you know, have to accept that you have been this person in the past, but it is not who you have to be in the future. And um, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that that, that was kind of my massive takeaway from that was that I just entered turn 30. I was like, what am I doing with my life? I thought my life was over after this one really awful thing. and, And now it's. Who, who do I get to be now and who who do I get to proactively choose to be? Do I choose to be this person who um, or not not choose to be, but do, how do I want to be in this world? Do I have to be this person that is bitter and holds on to a lot of, you know, the hurts that I've done, the mistakes that I've made on my own behalf, you know, or do I get to be this person that leads with love? And like that's I have that like into a new life thing right here tattooed on my arm, baby, yeah. uh, just because mm-hmm. of that. But yeah, like I think. In trying to articulate why this show is so important to me um, without sounding like a crazy person after going through like this whole plot and, you know, standing from it and going, well, so what? This is about a bunch of rich people being silly and stupid um, on the eve of something bad. And I think it's the hindsight of knowing that we have all kind of not seen ourselves in the situation for what it was and that we come out of it still, (laughs) you know, is what's really, really powerful Mm -hmm. to me about that. Like. There's a reason that rich people confronting these things they have no control over, things like love or sure. death or destruction or the apocalypse, like that's such an eternal theme in fiction because we are encouraged and not just within capitalism, within like essentially any structure that humans have come up with. We are encouraged to accumulate as much as we possibly can. And yet we're all going to die and we don't take those possessions with us. Right. So right. Frequently has like we just, the episode of succession that just aired has this as a theme. So it is like God, yeah. this <laughs> recurring idea. And I think, War and Peace is so good at tapping into that. Um, Kaveh, I want to ask you one question, which is, having mm-hmm. seen this musical, have you read War and Peace? I have not read War and Peace, Okay, no. Having seen this musical, which character do you think Natasha ends up with at the end of the book? 
that this character is in the musical? Uh, I'm guessing, I mean, based on just having seen the musical, probably not Pierre, but that's the only, uh, I don't know, maybe Anatole. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. She maybe ends Anatole? up with Pierre. Yeah. She does end up with Pierre. Okay. Yeah. So my instinct was right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's, and I, when I read the book, I was like, we're really going to do this. I was so confused and thrown because the musical was my introduction to War and Peace. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say that's like the, in the old time when this was written, that would have been like the happy ending. It's like the two people who would need each other emotionally. Maybe not the fact that he's old and she's like, like whatever, 15 or something you said, like she's super, super young. That's not a satisfactory ending is what you guys are saying. Again, I, I haven't read it, so I don't actually know. So War and Peace, like I had, I had already known really well before I had gone and see it. And so I, I like Natasha and Pierre ending up together, knowing the context of it. Um, because as you kind of put it, uh, Kave, they kind of do emotionally need each other and there's that satisfactory, you know, yeah. like, okay, mm-hmm. like they, 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 they see each other at this level, but where it happens where he confesses that he loves her is not the moment where they could ever love each other. And a lot of shit does happen before they get together. Like a lot happens Mm -hmm. between the space of great comet and the end of the book. Um, There is one thing I do want to clarify that I find always very interesting about this show is that they, I mean, we've talked about, you know, what, what, what was 25 and, you know, 1812, but Pierre is like roughly 25 years old at that point in war, 27 years old in war and peace. So he's like more of an old soul than an old man, but like pretty much make him like a dude in like his late fifties. Yeah. (laughs) And the guy, the guy we saw who was great. I'm trying to remember his name here. I might play bill here. Um, uh, Steven, Steven Hess. Yes. Uh, no, that's the understudy. I am so sorry. That is uh, Albert Hodge. We saw uh, he he's a, he was an older guy. So like he, and much older than even like Josh Groban or Dave Malloy kind of play it. So it was just like, oh, and I think they whitened his hair, too, to make him look even older. Yeah. Yeah. They made him correctly. like old motherfuckers. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. ARP. Yeah. And then, and then the one we saw, Angel at a Duke and I believe I'm saying right. Who was she was just like. I loved her. She was fantastic. Uh, she had a very much like Danae Benton kind of vibe, just like that perfect, like bright eyed ingenue. Uh, yeah. So like the, the age gap was like even more pronounced. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Seeing that just side note. Yeah. It's like it's like in the TV miniseries version of this, Paul Dano. Played oh, yeah. Pierre and that like that was when oh, he okay. was in his late 20s. Yeah. So like that's kind of like textually accurate. Yeah. Correct, but yeah, yeah, they are kind. they are, you know, like 10 to 15 years apart yeah. somewhere in that range. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the book does sort of follow a triangle of characters. It follows Natasha and Andre and Pierre and obviously tons of other people around them. But like those are kind of the three main focal points. So it makes sense you know, that two of them would end up together. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's the musical gives you a very distorted sense of like, for instance, how important Anatole is to the story. Cause he is important, but he's like, he's like on the B team somewhere. Yeah. Right. It also underscores just like how important Andre is. Cause Andre, again, one of the kind of basically, if we have three main characters in this book, it's Andre is one of them. And he's mm-hmm. kind of the opposite of Pierre. He is like, you know, this very wealthy, one of the wealthiest families in Russia, you know, he actually has another wife who dies before, uh, this, the plot of the musical starts uh, after giving birth to his kid. So he has a kid. He goes off to war voluntarily to get away from his first wife because he's just kind of horrified by domesticity and like, you know, the the extravagance of being wealthy. And so he's like, fuck it, I'm going to the war. I hope I die in the war or at least, you know, do something better with my life than this, <laughs> than, you know, wife and kid shit. Wow. Then his wife dies. And, yeah, yeah, it's super fucking bleak. Then his I'd wife, literally rather be dead right. than killed in a Napoleon. That's basically war. it. It's like this weird, like, masculine, play like... catch with my son. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, his wife dies and he feels terrible about it. And, you know, he has to, his his family's basically raising his son. And when he meets Natasha, he's just kind of struck by this idea of, like, Oh, in the same way that a lot of people are like, she's so innocent and full of life and, you know, young and like not young and like the young, but, you know, she's just she she has the jeunesse, I guess is what the French would say. Um, And, you know, is 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 kind of weirdly moved by her, but also still is dealing with this feeling of like, I can't do this. And is very kind of cold and distant. So you kind of miss that context of where Natasha is, why she kind of immediately is almost like, okay, you know what? I think I can fuck off from this family for a little bit. Cause Andre is like very hot and cold with her and, you know, has this weird kind of like death obsession that is kind of underlying to his whole character. But yeah, so like that's, that's, uh, it's so interesting hearing people who have never, you know, have no, no familiarity with War and Peace watching Great Common, what their takeaways are from it. Because I I basically almost at this point. I'm good at one thing, it's having no context for anything that we talk about (laughs) and not knowing anything. So that's, that's what I'm here for is to be a black hole. So Russia is a country in the Eastern (laughs) Hemisphere. 
It's yeah. very large. And yes, it yeah. is one of the larger countries, actually. Yes, so. yes. The, the original, I think, name for them were the Kievan Rus, who had originally come out of Sweden and Finland. And yes, that's that's the predominant. <laughs> that, I've been hearing Russia. a lot about them in the news recently I, for some yeah, reason. I don't, that, really know why. I don't know. But in, in a weird way, because like... Um, I know this has become almost more war and peace splaining than musical splaining this episode, but like, sure. I, I guess I don't know. I'm just so it's pretty important. It's a, it's important context for it. Let me see if I can yank us back toward the musical slightly by sure, like please, talking about Dave Dave Malloy's mm. <laughs> Dave Malloy. Yeah, I was like, gonna ask you is at the yeah, point you were yeah, gonna yeah, talk yeah. about earlier. Yeah, Dave Malloy read this book on a cruise ship because he was like he was like on a cruise ship like playing piano or something. And uh, that was his job one year or summer or something. So he's sitting Mm -hmm. there reading this book and he comes across this 80 page slice of it. Essentially what's in the musical is this one tiny section of war and peace. I think war and peace is like 15 famously very long. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 15 books. And then like, there's this one book that he said, and what he realized was it had a very classic Broadway musical structure. So the Broadway musical, like Oklahoma is the classic example. So I'm just going to use that is like, it has two triangles. It has um, Judd and Curly and Lori, and then it has Ado Annie and the other two guys. I can't remember the names of, Um, but there's, so there's, there's the, the main triangle, which is played for seriousness and the other triangle, which is comedic, but they comment on each other and reflect each other in various ways. So he reads this book and he's like, Andre, Anatole, and Natasha are a classic Broadway love triangle. Can I find a second triangle in there? And he was like, yes, it is between Pierre and despair and God. So in essence, he was like, I'm going to take this love triangle and make it the core of a Broadway musical. I'm going to have another triangle, which is not, not comedic. Like it's not funny, but there's a darkly satirical vibe to it. And I'm going to make that the secondary triangle. And then they're going to intersect at the end. It is it, that section of War and Peace is a perfectly structured Broadway musical, and he realized it, and that's why we have Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. But it is like this weird thing that, like, to read that book and be like, yes, this part is a Broadway musical. Yeah, to have that brain. Well, I mean, that's like what happened with Twister. You see, you have, you know, you have the Helen Hunt, you have the, <laughs> <laughs> you have the Bill Pullman, uh, or Bill Paxton, rather. And, it's a love uh, the, triangle with the twister itself. Right. Is the, yeah, it's the third part of that. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> no, and I guess it speaks to your point. We were like, Angie, we've seen 800 musicals, and they're all like great comment in terms they're of plot structure They're always in the 1800s. Right they're all love triangle. That explains it. Emily, you've clear, you've clarified it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, You're welcome. Um, I try. But- <laughs> um, I know we are we are running uh, a little tight on time at this point, but I because I, I, there's so much. We could do like three episodes about this. What I was going to ask you guys about was specifically the music and the arrangement, because to me, as far as, again, my, I guess not so virgin year anymore, because we're 60 some odd episodes in, but it's, and I'm, it made me sort of reach the limit of like how well I can articulate my thoughts about something musically because I have no actual training. I'm a self-taught musician, so I don't really, I might say these things incorrectly, but it felt like it was different from other shows that we've seen in that, like it did sort of weave in between a bunch of different genres from different times very well. And the arrangement wasn't so predictable in a way that a lot of, especially having seen, sorry to shit on Mean Girls again, but having seen Mean Girls earlier in that day. Yeah. uh, What a a contrast. Sound. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Musically, it didn't sound like anything that we had seen or that, you know, we've seen for the show. And I think part of that too, I, I felt was like it had to do a lot with the, with this Russian roots and to me it was something that was like non uh, Western, right? It wasn't quite like a middle Eastern scale of music, but you know, just hearing Russian music sounds very different from anything you would hear otherwise. And I think that was one of the reasons I felt so engaged with it musically and how much I enjoyed just listening to it and being in the pit and hearing the music and hearing the players is that like, it just didn't sound like anything else. And I don't know if you guys felt that way or did you guys connect more just to the sort of story and the emotional, you know, uh, parts of the characters. Well, Emily, you first, but I, I do have some thoughts on that. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I like, so one of the things I love about this show is that it starts and ends in very traditional musical fashion. The opening numbers and the closing numbers you could hear in a very like classic, probably not a 40s, 50s style, but like once Sondheim's, you know, sort of taking over in the 70s and 80s, those songs could exist comfortably in one of those shows. And then like the entire middle, particularly when Anatole enters, like there's this electro pop element to it 
And that gets added in. So there's this like clash between traditionalism and modernity within the music that reflects the, the, the text of the show in a way that I find really engaging. Um, it, it reminds me of the score for the movie Babylon, which is a jazz score that nonetheless has like a lot of rock and electronic influences buried way down in the baseline. So it's, it, it feels modern, even though it's not modern music. And, and I think a great comment takes that even further. But Angie, what were you going to say? Oh yeah. I was just going to like, if you've ever listened to any of Dave Malloy's other works, I think he really just likes the idea of, of, of zhuzhing up like folk style music against kind of electronic and pop. Like if he has this other shit, like a song cycle, I guess you'd call it ghost quartet that does a lot of the similar kind of things with it. So I feel like that's kind of in his wheelhouse and something that he blows out because the text of war and peace and great Comet support it so much. The other thing that I guess really struck me listening to it musically from a music point of view, rather all the lyrics for this show are pretty much straight up paraphrased from the book. Like Dave Malloy is the lyricist, but like a lot of it is just straight Tolstoy. And what's fascinating to me about the music. And there's really the, the part you really hear is in the opera is how much the music feels informed by the text. Like, like, in this way that it's just like, it's not necessarily about like the shape of the show. It is like, what is going on? So it's talking about this low droning sound of the opera. And so he goes into this very weird mixture of like, because it's also textually this other world experience for Natasha. Natasha is having this out of body experience. And, you know, what was what would what she'd probably be hearing is, you know, basically, you know, late 18th century, early 19th century opera. And we can kind of get an idea of what that would actually sound like. Um, it, it, it's not that at all. It becomes like this otherworldly, like droning mixture of techno because Anatole has come in and introduced this new element to to the story, but also just it can't be of this world because then it would not be this like transporting experience that is for Natasha. And like, just that, like that's the best example of it in this show, but like how much musically Dave Malloy leans into those moments where you, you would push the music to break boundaries. Cause yeah, a lot of this is about things rubbing up against each other and ultimately breaking, you know, wealth and, you know, war and how they break. And, but yeah, like, like he, that's what got me about the music <laughs> for lack of a better word. One reason that Broadway really struggled with the rise of um, hip hop as a, as a musical art form is that hip hop, you know, tr- classic hip hop, not all hip hop. I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking, you know, of the whole genre, but like is built atop sampling and sampling is the thing you can't really do on Broadway. Like when rock became the musical idiom, Broadway could sort of encompass that you can do Broadway rock music it's much harder to do Broadway hip hop music. Like, you know, if you're like a true, like the true, like people who are big hip hop fans will hear Hamilton and be like, this is kind of lame because you know, it's not really approaching like, like what the best, the best rappers and hip hop musicians can do. So like, there is this like tension within Broadway music that doesn't respond well to this, this prevail, this prevalence, uh, art form or to things like techno, things like um, EDM that have become more popular in the last, you know, 20 years. And like, I think, I think Natasha Pierre is like really good at sampling, not individual songs, but lots of different styles of music. And then not just like, like fucking Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat has songs <laughs> in different styles. But right. This song is, yeah. this musical is like smashing them against each other. It's being like, here's Russian folk music. Here's electro pop. Here's like rock. Here is traditional Broadway music. And I'm going to put them all in the same song. And it creates a really pleasant vibe for your ear. And I don't know a lot of other Broadway compute composers who are doing that, who aren't Dave Malloy or Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's like a lot of people who are just sort of trying to reinvent the wheel. And I'm not at all talking about Pesach and Paul, yes. my <laughs> sworn enemies. They're just trying to write Ben Fold's Rock in the Suburbs five times in a row. Right. No, I mean, I mean, again, the, not to just shit on Mean Girls, but like Mean Girls is very was very much just trying to do like, I think this is what the kids like now in a post Wicked, post Hamilton kind of world. Like they like something that sounds like it could be on the radio, but also it can't sound like it would be mm-hmm. on the radio because it's hard to write actual moving pieces around it. But also we don't care. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, yeah. really, really, really like just bringing up um, just contemporary music and how it does not necessarily lend itself well to you know just straight up at it like just straight up putting it on the stage compared to like what Dave Malloy does here and why it's such a satisfying thing to listen to compared to like I don't know most of the shows that have come out in the last you know 20 years but even but even like you guys said though the the specific genres that it's referencing or the styles of music to me is is so different from 
everything else that we've listened to, just hearing those scales, at least like in terms of the kind of music that I grew up listening to in my home, which is, you know, a non-Western scale. So it's like, oh, there, there was this level of like, you guys ever see Sing Street where they talk about happy, sad? You know, they're talking about like the cure. Oh, it's always yeah, like yeah, 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 happy, yeah. sad. It's, it's songs that are like sad that make you happy when you listen to them, right? I, I feel like this sort of fits in with like, not that this is part of it, but like the Smiths or the cure. It's sort of, it has that similar feeling to it. I feel like when you listen to it, uh, which is something I really enjoyed. Okay, you guys, that's our thoughts on the Great Comet of 1812. I could be here uh, for I'm another sure. four hours, to be perfectly honest. Yes. But <laughs> yes. Do you want to do, really st- do you want to reconnect and talk for another six hours? Because I feel like yeah, we, can. we absolutely okay. yes, could. Maybe this we is- can do another uh, Patreon episode where you guys go more deeply into it, which if you guys have not signed up for our Patreon, please yes. go ahead and do so right now. Patreon.com slash musical explaining. Um, if you'd let, like to know that if you'd like to let us know your thoughts um, please go ahead and follow us on Twitter. We are at Musical Splaining with no G and at Musical Splaining with a G on Instagram. I am at Covetarian on Twitter and at Permafriends on Instagram. Emily, tell us where you're at, what you're up to, anything you wanted to uh, drop before we go. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Emily St. Jams. I believe I'm also on Instagram at that, but I am all locked down there, so you can't look at me. Don't perceive me. Um, <laughs> no. The, uh, <laughs> I have writing all over the... I have writing all over the internet. I link to it on Twitter and um, I am the co-creator of the podcast Arden, which I'm not involved in season three very much, but they're making it so you could go listen to it and then be like, Emily, you co-created that. And I'll be like, yes, thank you. I did. <laughs> Fantastic. And um, I am uh, Angelina. Well, gosh, wow. Can't even talk. Why Angelina? Why on Twitter? W H Y Angelina Y on Twitter and uh, Angelina underscore C. Uh, if you want to look at pictures of all my recent fan of the opera travails that are, you know, not going to haunt me for the rest of my oh, life. God. They are there. Um, but Locked. yeah, thanks again, Emily, for joining us again. 12 hours. Oh my of God. This. Yes, can thank I, you so much. Can I do just one other thing to stick at the end of my plug? Whoever edits this, please put it in. Um, I also co-host the podcast podcast. Like it's 1992. We're talking about all the movies made in 1992 and guess what? A lot of them are bad, but I'm having a great time. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. That sounds awesome. That sounds fantastic. Go that check it like out. A good time. But and again, and of course you guys, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a nice review. Follow our sponsor links and don't forget to check out the musical splendid merch on the yes. Nebula store. It's all very cool and you know awesome. Then you should buy it. Buy as Kava much of it as you can. made it, guys. He he put his heart and buy soul it, into yeah, it. Please, you get a piece of his heart me. and soul for for the low every, low price every, of an uh, enamel pin. Every piece comes with a drop of my blood. Anyway, you guys, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Emily. Thank you so much <laughs> we'll for having me. Thank you. Bye. And here we uh, go, guys, into a new life. One. See you in the next life. <laughs>